Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Kittler. And this is episode 45 in our series for 2017. And today's date is Friday the 8th of December. And Leon, this week we're talking with Adam O'Neill of Wysog. That's right. Adam O'Neill is going to be talking to us all about the using printing in the finance industry and the efficiencies of that. Yeah. And then we're hearing from philosopher and economist Nicholas Gruen about well-being framework. That's right. That's going to be fascinating too. Yep. And it will be thought-provoking. But first, let's hear from Adam O'Neill. Adam, uh, tell us about network printers and data breaches. Yeah, absolutely. So I guess when we start thinking of data security and cyber security and, and so on, uh, a lot of the focus these days tends to be around, you know, laptops, mobile phones, the new wave of sort of Internet of Things connected devices. One thing that tends to be forgotten, um, and that's why it's sort of been termed a weak link, uh, weak link, sorry, in data security recently, is the humble network printer. Um, so this is network printers, multifunction devices, those sort of things. I guess the reason why they're sort of the weak link at this stage is not because of the devices themselves. It's probably more the perception that the devices are sort of a dumb endpoint, if you'd like. There's something you hit print and paper comes out the other end and that's about it. Um, with modern printers and multifunction devices, they've certainly increased dramatically in terms of sophistication and capability and so on in recent years. They're running software applications, they've got services running and so on. Uh, so, you know, obviously with that level of sophistication, they become, they become sort of increased risk unless the devices are configured and secured properly. How sophisticated are they to, 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 to would, uh, make them vulnerable? To yeah, the absolutely. So, yeah, there's uh, both... I guess the the device's own applications are running on there, which it lets the devices communicate via email. A lot of the devices these days will communicate back to the manufacturer for uh, things like fill me up with more toner or ink or, or so on. Uh, and on top of that, there's also third-party applications that run that provide a host of other features on the device, you know, everything from uh, different ways of scanning and handling documents to um, things like cloud integration and so on. So, yeah, they certainly are a, uh, a far reach, I guess, from the, the old network printer used to sit in the corner. Uh, tell me, is there any evidence that uh, large enterprise suffering uh, one uh, data breaches through insecure printing? Yeah, sure. There's been quite a few studies done recently. So um, PricewaterhouseCoopers conducted a study, uh, I think about two years ago in the UK, and they found that around about 90% of large businesses, about 74% of small businesses, had suffered some form of data breach. And I guess Complementary to that, I guess, Corsica's released a report recently that says that around about 60% of large enterprises have suffered some form of data breach related to print security. So it's, uh, there's certainly a, a fairly valid risk behind there. Um, combined with that was interesting. There was actually a uh, black hat hacker decided to test print security. Uh, this was in March last year. And he actually did a search on the internet and found uh, over a million printers that he was able to access. Uh, out of those, he actually sent uh, racist flyers to around about 29,000 devices at US colleges, just to sort of demonstrate the point and make people aware, I guess a bit of a shock tactic, that um, these, you know, the security of connected devices is an issue. That, that's extraordinary. That's in, so there are so many devices out there that are vulnerable. Absolutely, yeah. It's sort of, as we said, the weak link, it's not something that you generally think of when you're thinking of security within an organisation. Indeed, but I mean, the issue is that um, there are laws. I mean, I know the Australian government has uh, legislation um, 
like with the Privacy Act, uh, protecting personal information and um, there are potential fines um, and many organisations have to provide notice to the Australian Information Commissioner um, if, if data breaches occur. I mean, so where does, where does that fit in? Yeah, sure. I guess organisations, once again, it's, it's probably something that needs a little bit more focus on. When we're talking about printers, I guess talking about the network security element is, you know, a lot of people sort of say, well, you know, that won't happen to me if I've got, you know, adequate network guards and so on. However, when we're talking about printers, we're also talking about something really simple, which is, you know, someone printing something, getting a phone call before they stand up to go and get the document, uh, forgetting they've printed the document, as we've all done. It sits on the output tray and someone else within the organisation picks up a document. Now, if that document contains sensitive information, then that can be a problem. Uh, so, you know, it really ranges from anything as simple as that uh, through to, yet again, not, not sort of too much more technical, I guess, but um, one other way that we've seen machines be breached is a lot of devices have the default username and password set on them for administrative access, and someone will jump on the device, they'll add in a second email address as a BCC on a scan to email profile. And that way, whenever a user walks up and scans something, another copy of the document is silently disappearing off to another website or uh, sorry, another website, another user. So, you know, there's sort of two, I guess, fairly low level ways of, uh, of how to, uh, or security risk posed by printers. Um, two of the other ways, I guess, is uh, hard drives on the machine. So most devices have a hard drive or a storage drive on the machine, and every time you print a copy of the document's placed on that drive. Now, when you upgrade devices, if that setting hasn't been configured to be overwritten or encrypted or anything else, anyone with knowledge can actually you know, access documents from those, uh, from those hard drives. So they're, they're probably the three, I guess, risks that people may not consider when they're looking at their, I guess, their adherence to the Privacy Act. Uh, with print devices on top of that sort of more complicated network access. The bottom line is that the law actually places a lot of onus on people to actually take responsibility for stuff like that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely it does. Um, and it's it's something that is actually, thankfully, quite easy to, to rectify. The bottom line, though, is that businesses aren't actually doing this. Uh, people are just sort of just saying, oh, it's just a printer, nothing can happen to it. Probably changing your mindset a little bit recently. Um, a lot of that has been driven by print vendors, by the, the vendors actually selling or supplying the printers. So there's there's been an increase in security awareness by the vendors out to their customers on how to configure the devices. So that that certainly helps quite a quite a great deal. The other message I guess that we're trying to get out there is is around including printers in the security strategy of an organisation or a business, and you know really to as you mentioned before, no longer consider printers as sort of a dumb endpoint but start considering printers in the overall security strategy. And that, of course, is not only considering the printers themselves, that's also considering how the data gets to the printer and back from the printer. That's, that's sort of, I guess, one way that businesses can look at reducing the risk. A few others, I guess, are adding user authentication to devices. So this is using the staff member walks up to a device rather than getting free access to the device. They need to tap their business card or, or a similar sort of method there. That will then authenticate them and there's a lot of issues in the device and when so if something is released there's an audit log behind it. So Adam is access to the network printer is that then a tunnel into the network and maybe from there into a data center and something rather more sensitive than than simply a document? Yeah absolutely it certainly can be. Um, it's been a few years ago now but there was a case where 
I believe it was in the US that um, hackers actually replaced the firmware in a printer and that printer was then able to sort of sniff the network and capture various network traffic for, for use in hacking under to further systems. As I mentioned before, as long as the devices themselves, and modern devices are quite good at this, but as long as they've been configured and uh, set up correctly, that sort of minimizes any any risk in, in that particular way that, uh, you know, it's all getting back to that strategy of adequately securing. So basically, I mean, in a nutshell, what do companies have to do to set up their printers as part of that security strategy? I guess probably the first thing is work with a trusted advisor, whether it's uh, the printer company supplying information or a, a third-party company that uh, specialises in this area. Review your print fleet, review the, the organisation's print fleet and sort of assess where there are potential risks and then you know close those off. A lot of that initially starts just with something as simple as device configuration, so going through the web interface on a, on a print device these days and making sure it's been configured. Also at that time, it's in... Uh, applying things such as the data overwrite protection and encryption that we sort of mentioned a little bit before on the devices to make sure that's set up. And then from there, probably the next bit is applying something like a print management system, uh, such as Safeview or one of the other print management systems on the market. And that then provides that level of authentication to the device. At the same time, most organisations these days are now implementing print roaming, which is where when you hit print, the job doesn't physically print off until you walk up to a device tap your card and then have the document print off while you're standing in front of it. So naturally enhancing security. And probably the last thing on top of all of that really is regularly review the um, print strategy or the security strategy and update it because obviously there's new technology, changing business needs, organisational changes, and all these need to be taken into account. Adam O'Neill, thank you very much for your time. Of course, all right. Thank you very much. Well, that's all part of the brave new world, Leon. That's right. That's right. It's it's uh, absolutely fascinating. It's fascinating stuff. Yep, and uh, maybe save some money for businesses. That's right. And now Nicholas Gruen. Nicholas Gruen, you've written a lot about well-being frameworks. Uh, what exactly is a well-being framework? Uh, well, that's a good question. Uh, the Treasury had one uh, Ken Hen during Ken Henry's tenure as Secretary of the Department of the Treasury. He uh, brought about Treasury having a well-being framework. The idea is basically to try and describe a state of affairs in which you uh, say that you are targeting something more than just GDP growth. Uh, so uh, the Treasury... Uh, framework uh, had a more generous, broader idea of prosperity. It included income, uh, which was uh, subsumed under the idea of making, giving people choices, enabling people to choose the life they want to lead based on the the uh, ideas of Nobel Prize winning uh, economist and economic philosopher Amartya Sen uh, was also interested in the way in which the income is distributed. Uh, in other words, uh, if, if all the income in the economy or almost all of it accrues to the very wealthy, that's much less worth doing than if it accrues more, more equally throughout society. So Treasury gave itself this economic framework, told us all that um, this was guiding its its deliberations, and I have very little doubt that the Treasury's deliberations were guided by a, a more generous understanding of economic objectives than just maximising GDP. But I was always suspicious that this this uh, uh, five-point 
wellbeing framework was really a set of talking points which were to be dipped into when one was discussing why one did something which one had already decided one was going to do and I think I've got pretty good proof that that's exactly what it was and uh, then when John Fraser took over as secretary a few months ago, might have been up to about a year ago, he abolished it. And uh, there was some gnashing of teeth among ex-Treasury officials uh, and possibly Treasury officials, I don't know. Uh, but I challenged one on a website who said how disappointing it was. I said, tell me, uh, tell me what things did the framework change? Uh, and he came up blank so so that's the australian well-being framework came and went without much uh, without making much difference uh well-being frameworks are being taken a bit more seriously in the uk and in new zealand but again they don't seem to have nearly as much effect as as uh things that find their way into the way governments do things and the way they think about their bottom line and so on so they haven't been that successful is that right uh, well, I don't think they've been they've done much. So if you compare what so so New Zealand seems to have taken its its well being framework a bit more seriously, but you can't find any really big initiatives that you would say have been brought about because they adopted a well being framework. On the other hand, the UK has a now I can't I'm not too sure whether it really was very closely related to the well being framework, but the UK has. As, well, at least under David Cameron and, you know, there's all these anxieties about rebranding and, every you know, the new prime minister having her own brand and all that terrible stuff. But at least under David Cameron, there was a really quite substantial push to address loneliness, which is a, a big issue as it that turns out to be an economic issue of some significance. But amongst older people, loneliness is a really terrible problem and it, it directly affects well-being and it's pretty one one uh, i would have thought one one ought to be able to have a pretty big impact on it at pretty low cost and that's a gross cost in other words if we spend you know a average of five hundred dollars per lonely person i suspect that we'll get that money the governments themselves will get that money back fairly quickly because if we make people less lonely and more connected, they're more likely to do worthwhile work in the community. Uh, they're less likely to end up in nursing home care uh, if they're old, uh, for it will delay their entry into nursing home care, etc., etc. So if we were ever taking wellbeing framework seriously, those are the kinds of agendas we would have got into. Uh, what I call no regrets measures, that is measures that are usually relatively cheap to, to initiate, but then recoup their cost in improved functioning of our society and our economy. Now, we certainly didn't do that in Australia. I don't know what the connection between the well-being framework and the loneliness agenda and a range of other things are in the United Kingdom, but they're at least showing us the way. Uh, the other thing I'd say is that in New Zealand, they have this thing called the investment approach to welfare, uh, and that certainly didn't really come via their well-being framework, but that's the sort of thing that really is pushing policy. So they've done this amazing thing. You know, you'd think it was child's play, but apparently we don't do it, or we don't do it very well, and we haven't done it for a long time, and that is to think about welfare, uh, the, you know, the amount of money we're going to be paying out in welfare over the next 5, 10, 20 years as a long-tail liability and to manage that in the way that an insurer will. And that clearly puts you 
you in mind of saying, all right, well, we may need to spend a fair bit of money on people who are unemployed, people who are disabled. But uh, if we do that and we do it effectively, which is uh, not necessarily, you know, we certainly shouldn't assume just because we spend money, it works. If we if we need to spend a fair bit of money and we know we can do it effectively, then we'll get that money back because it will lower our liabilities into the future. And and, and the upshot of all that is much higher well-being uh, because, you know, disabled people, people who are unemployed are disproportionately unhappy. But if we get them back to work, get them functioning again, they're much happier and there's an economic dividend that we all benefit from. So to make them more effective, you need that sort of thinking to actually look at the what you're actually getting back from yeah. those measures. Well, Is that, that right? Helped. Yeah, that's well I would say that if the test of whether you're really making a well-being framework work for you is are you treating it a little bit in the way that we treated we have treated um i mean this it hasn't gone seamlessly into policy but our thinking on something like greenhouse gas you're you're familiar with the term no regrets policy and a no regrets policy under um, emissions abatement is fuel economy and a range of other initiatives which are worth doing in their own right, but at the same time have a spin-off benefit of lowering carbon emissions. And I would say that when you put a new pair of glasses on, let's and these glasses are called well-being glasses, whenever you put anything like this, whenever you change the frame, there will be things that were always worth doing even without the glasses on that become that much more worth doing with the glasses on. And the question is, are these frameworks really a bit of window dressing or are they a new pair of glasses to look at the economy and then to ch- uh, and then to focus on priorities that really give us a lot of bang for the buck uh, and cost us nothing and i think there are plenty of those things in the in in the in the well-being agenda and uh we sort of need to shock our societies and our bureaucracies out of just thinking in exactly the same way and occasionally slapping a new coat of paint on business as usual. In other words, to actually look at what you're getting back would be the way to address well-being. I don't want to say that if there are things we can do for people's well-being that just improve their well-being and might cost us some money, I don't mind doing those things what I'm saying is that there are tens of billions of dollars worth of activity that are worth doing that if you look at it properly and rigorously and over, say, five or ten years, don't cost us money. They may cost us some money in the short term, but they generate that they will pay us back. Uh, if you're running around saying you've got a well-being framework, why the hell wouldn't you be trying to really focus on those things? Because there's plenty of them. And they're fantastic things to do. The community will thank you for it, although the community doesn't. Uh, John Button once said to me, the one, the one emotion the community or the electorate doesn't suffer from is gratitude. But there you are. Um, it's worth doing and you'll die happy having actually done some good. Nicholas Green, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Leon. Thanks, Nicholas. That was fantastic. So what do you think, Leon? I think that's really interesting. It's really interesting stuff. Yeah, well, it's, uh, I mean, it actually goes to all, all about government decision making too. Yes, indeed. Uh, you know, not uh, voting for things just simply because uh, Tony Adip thinks that way. That's right. And now the news. What what do you got in the bag this week, Leon? Well, Gary, for a start, U.S. Senate Republicans secured approval by the narrowest of margins for the most contentious and sweeping overhaul of a U.S. tax code in three 
decades. The change slashing the corporate tax rate, providing temporary tax cuts for most Americans and eliminating several popular deductions were voted through by margin of 51 to 49 votes at 2 a.m. on Saturday. Only one Republican, Bob Corker, voted against it. No Democrats voted for the bill. The bill was only approved after Republican leaders added a number of last-minute changes, including a $10,000 property tax deduction to appease the concern of Senator Susan Collins of Maine. A joint taxation committee score last week found that even with the slight economic growth spurred by the bill, the tax cut would still add one trillion dollars to the U.S. deficit, at least. And the passage of the legislation gives a much-needed boost for the Republicans and U.S. President Donald Trump, who have not been able to deliver on any other piece of legislation. Trump has promised to sign the legislation before the end of 2017. However, before it can go to Trump, Congress has to resolve differences between the Senate bill and the one the House of Reps passed last month. And those indifferences include the Senate version cutting the corporate rate to 20% from 35% in 2019, compared to the one in-house, which had its starting in 2018. And the Senate bill, unlike the House version, provides only temporary tax release to individuals, any tax cuts for them in 2026. Both versions are expected to add, as I said, more than $1 trillion to the US deficit before accounting for economic growth. Yeah, and just as opinion is here on our government's tax cut moves, it's uh, difficult to see much real boost, in fact, to the US economy. And uh, there's concern in both camps about loss of revenue adding to already huge debt. And also, the way the Republicans wrote it up, they wrote it with, with the scribbled last-minute changes on the bill. You know, I mean, you wouldn't do that in an exam paper. That's true. Anyway, hopes for a, break, for a breakthrough in the Brexit talks fell apart at the 11th hour when London and Brussels failed to reach an agreement on the divorce deal after the Democratic Union, Unionist Party refused to accept concessions on the Irish border issue. The pro-Brexit DUP, which provides UK Prime Minister Theresa May with her majority in Parliament, objected to May's agreement to keep the province aligned with EU law after Brexit, and which uh, would see Northern Ireland remaining in the EU's customs union and single market in all but name. May had travelled to Brussels on Monday to meet European Commissioner President Jean-Claude Juncker for what was meant to be a key lunch to sort out the details and loose ends. But she had to interrupt that lunch to make a call to the leader of a DUP, Arlene Foster. And after that call, May and Juncker declared there'd be no deal. The pain fell. Now, the bottom line is it's been 17 months since the Brexit referendum, and Britain will leave the block in 15 months with or without a deal, Gary. Yeah, and no one can see any deal likely in the future. So the Brits will be hit with a multi-billion euro alimony, uh, but they're going to be very slow, decades in paying it, if indeed they ever fully pay it. Well, this is just going to be quite an issue. And so we'll see... uh I mean, May had reached some sort of agreement with him on the figure, which would have been something in the area of about 50 billion euro, which is a lot of money. Indeed it is. Now, uh, to Australia, the RBA, as expected, kept interest rates unchanged at 1.5%, citing concerns about low wage growth while looking for a pickup. This means interest rates have been at this level now for 15 months, and the RBA gave little indication in its statement that this was about to change. The RBA said one continuing source of uncertainty is the outlook household consumption, which is interesting. Now, at the same time, the Australian economy has rebounded to near full strength with the latest ABS figures showing it's growing at 2.8%. Gross domestic product rose 0.6% in the September quarter from the previous three months, whereby revised 0.9%. But what was keeping it going, Gary, was all the business investment and engineering because household consumption was running at about 1%, which is the bottom of 
the um, the bottom line. It, 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 it's 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 the lowest since two thousand and eight. Because wages are in fact going backwards. That's right, and it also missed uh, economists' estimates. Uh, economists had it coming in at three percent and point uh, seven percent, not point six percent. So it came in under estimates, but yeah. still, it's moving towards the three percent uh, flagged by the RBA. Yeah, oh, well, that's something, I guess. Yeah, and it shows that business is doing the heavy lifting. Now, Australia's current account deficit has contracted sharply to $9.1 billion in the September quarter, which is an improvement on the previous quarter's triggers, which saw the current account deficit doubling to $9.6 billion. And, and that was still above economists' forecasts, which had it coming in at $8.7 billion for the quarter. That's pretty good, really, I guess, when you think about it. Yeah, yeah. Now, after a soft patch in September, Australian retail sales rose 0.5% in October, according to the ABS, showing consumers are outspending again. It's the biggest rise in five months and follows 0.1% rise in September 2017. Cafes, restaurants and takeaway food services led the way across all industries with rises of 1.7%. There are also rises in food retailing, which is up 0.3%. Clothing, footwear and personal accessories up 2.5%. Electronics, 0.8%. Other retailing, 0.3%. Department stores, 0.5%. And household goods retailing, up 1.1%. Now, the ABS figures, Gary, coincide with Amazon officially launching its Australian operations and with plans to expand its local online product range to more than 20 consumer categories. Amazon's Australian marketplace has 23 categories. But, Gary, it's been Amazon life and the prices have not been competitive. No, expectations of an Amazonian sales avalanche are tempered by Facebook posts in Australia, generally showing people to be somewhat disappointed. Well, also, I think Amazon did nothing in the media as well, and that left the way open for people like Jerry Harvey to take up the space. So I think there was a tremendous underwhelm. Amazon, though, does have the potential to really disrupt the retail scene here, and, you know, because they've got revenues of $161 billion compared to Myers, $2.6 billion. And uh, also, we're waiting for Amazon Prime to come in. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it's early days, and they haven't got all their uh, armoury built. That's right. Now, the ANZ Job Advertisement Series rose 1.5% in November, following a 1.5% increase in the previous month. On an annual basis, job advertisements are up 12.1%. That's just a tick down from the 12.5%. In trend terms, job ads were up 0.7% in November. There has been a slowdown in the trend, which averaged 1.16%, 0.94% over the second and third quarter, respectively. And also importantly, the increase has yet to translate into higher wages. Yeah, and that may be some time in coming. That's right. Now, business confidence is up, but they're not that keen on the future outlook. Australia's small all small to medium-sized businesses are reporting an uptick in confidence heading into the holiday season. The Westpac Melbourne Institute SME Index shows business confidence has risen from 100.7 in the third quarter of 217 to 100.8 in the fourth. It's the fourth time Australian SMEs have reported positive business conditions since March 2016. The confidence was boosted by solid improvement in business conditions, with the current conditions index increasing 11.9% on the last quarter with better sales and profits. Confidence was particularly strong in the construction industry, jumping 16.4% over the quarter, with an increase in volume of non-residential building offsetting a small decline in residential work. There was also stronger confidence in manufacturing and professional services, but wholesale and retail and hospitality and recreation service sectors reported dips in confidence, dropping 19% and 13.1% respectively. And that might explain also, Gary, why the index showed SMEs are feeling less optimistic about future business conditions than three months ago. The Futures Conditions Index recorded a decrease of 79 
0.9%. Now, um, important news is the ACCC, the Australian Competition Consumer Commission, will investigate Google and Facebook looking at their impact on Australia's media and advertising market. The probe comes after the Nick Xenophon team secured a deal for an ACCC inquiry into the impact of platforms like Google and Facebook in exchange for supporting the government's media reforms. ACCC Chairman Rod Sims said the inquiry would look at whether platforms are exercising market power and commercial dealings to the detriment of consumers, media content creators and advertisers. And it was also examined the longer term trends and the effect of technological change on competition in media and advertising. Another item on its list includes the impact of digital platforms on the level of choice and quality of news and content being produced by Australian journalists. And this inquiry comes, of course, in the wake of the decline of ad expenditure in print newspaper and recent ACCC merger reviews finding that most advertisers are spending less on print newspapers and finding alternative ways of reaching target audiences, including through the digital media. Meantime, both of the US giants are, of course, favourite targets and whipping boys all over the world. And Google, for example, seems always in trouble with the European Union. That's right, yeah. So, uh, and of course, this was all a political payback for uh, Nick Xenophon. Yep, that's right. Despite intense competition between Woolworths, Coles and Aldi, record price deflation and low consumer confidence, Metcash has lifted its interim net profit 24% to $92.9 million from $74.9 million the year before. And the figures reflect gains from the merger of Mitre 10 and Home Timber and Hardware. And this would have offset food sales, which declined 1.4% to $4.36 billion, and supermarket sales, which slipped 0.8%. Merging with Mitre 10 was a good idea. That's right. Diversifying the business was very, very important. Now, Crown Casino shareholders are taking the gambling giant to court over its strategy targeting wealthy Chinese gamblers. Law firm Morris Blackburn has launched class action against Crown after shareholders lost around $100 million when shares dropped 14% following the rest of 18 Crown employees in China in relation to gambling crimes. And the national head of class actions at Morris Blackburn, Andrew Watson, said Crown should have spelt out the risks of flouting Chinese laws banning illegal gambling activities. And the law firm will argue that Crown was aware it was putting its employees, including Crown Resorts Senior Executive Jason O'Connor, who was head of Crown's at high roller operations, at risk of being arrested. Of course, the employees were released after they pleaded guilty of the crime of promoting gambling in China in June. Let's just watch that space. It's not good news for Crown, Gary. Finally, Gary, Adani's hopes of getting its $16.5 billion Carmichael mine have been set back with Chinese and international banks saying they will not Funded. The director of the Australia-China Relations Institute, Bob Carr, has claimed some credit after lobbying Chinese organisations against the project on behalf of the Australian Conservation Foundation for the past three weeks. The Bank of China, Investec Bank, and the Industrial and Commercial Bank of China have released separate statements saying that they will not fund the already controversial mining project, and this compounds Adani's problems with Queensland Premier Anastasia Palachuk moving closer to forming majority government. In the first week of the campaign, Ms Palachuk reversed the Labor government's position on Adani and announced that would veto $1 billion, the $1 billion Northern Australian infrastructure facility loan the company had applied for to build the rail link from the mine to the Abercorn coal port near the Great Barrier Reef. And that's not good news, Gary. No, it's not. But I think in the end, it'd probably work out better. Well, look, let's see how it goes. Let's see how it goes. And, um, and that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. And uh, next week, we're going to be talking to Andrew Hislip, who's going to be talking to us all about how uh, the banks can reach millennials. And that's it for this week. And uh, in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at uh, TalkingBizBioZ or on Facebook. We look forward to talking to you next week.